Oh, what's this? Dear Scott, I will be in Calgary this week. Have a great show by yourself. Oh, f- Almost live from a post-apocalyptic future where technology no longer works. This is the Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I am by myself. My co-host Adam is in Calgary this week. So uh, much like how just a few weeks ago he had to do a solo podcast without me, I am now doing a solo podcast without him. But he did not get to talk to someone as awesome as I get to talk to. I am at the Pure Speculation Festival, uh, which you will already know about because we talked about it uh, last episode on the Unknown Studio, and I am with author. S.M. Sterling and his lovely wife, Jan. Uh, welcome to the show. Oh, good to be here. Now, uh, I guess the perfect place to start a conversation is, why S.M.? Well, that's the way I sign my checks and official documents. And when they asked me, what do you want, how do you want your name on the book? I said, I'll just do it the way I signed the contract. Fair enough. And I got stuck with that. And for years afterwards, people assumed I was a woman for some reason. If you do it initials, apparently... That's female. Do people generally assume that J.R.R. Tolkien was a woman then? Uh, no, but then, uh, you know, Oxford professor. Okay, fair enough. Pipe, that sort of thing. It, are you saying that a woman couldn't be an Oxford professor with a pipe? In Tolkien's day? Okay, touche. That is a fair comment. So uh, what drew you to being an author? Why did you decide you wanted to write for a living? What madness overtook you that you decided to do that? Well, I've been making up stories in my head since I was very small. Um, long, intricately plotted daydreams, uh, reading compulsively, and eventually I just sort of came to the conclusion, first, if I want the books I really want to read, I'm going to have to write them myself, and secondly, I, I sort of came to the hubristic conclusion that, well, I'm reading something, and I, 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 I could do this. So my first few books were, um, well, the ones I wrote just for myself were more or less uh, imitative, pastiche, fanfic, that sort of thing. That's the way people usually start. And then uh, I started to aspire to write professionally. I trained as a lawyer, but I had my fin removed <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> worked at odd jobs until I could make a living writing. Uh, and you never decided to go back to law after that? Or no, no, no. No, I had, I had bad experiences with law. Fair enough. And uh, found that most of the stereotypes and uh, scurrilous stories were true. So <laughs> decided not to go into it. The guy I, I articled with was disbarred. Oh, Awkward. We won't, uh, well, I presume that he's one of our tens of listeners, so you probably don't want to say anything disparaging about him. Uh, So you're best known as uh, an alternate history fiction writer. Um, What drew you to that particular genre? Well, I've always also had an interest in history. History is the, the sum of the stories of the human race, and it's one of the miracles of the modern educational system that it can make history sound dull. Yep. Um, <clears throat> you know, history is full of stories, comical stories, tragic stories, really bizarre stories, stories that you can't uh, mention on a, on a family uh, podcast, uh, like what Sigismondo Malatesta did to the papal envoy in Rimini. And, um, you know, it's just full of, like, chock full of interesting stuff, some of which you, you couldn't write, not because it's, like, bloody or obscene, but because it's just so implausible <laughs> that uh, you can't get away with it in fiction. History just has to exist. Uh, 
fiction has to be has to, has to have a certain degree of superficial plausibility to get people to suspend their disbelief. I was uh, reading something earlier today, actually, in, in preparation for speaking to you, that said if you wrote uh, about Alexander the Great and it had never happened in history, people would not believe it, that yeah. he had been able to basically conquer the, uh, the Western world in his lifetime while he was still a young man. Yeah. People would go, you've just written a Mary Sue fiction piece. <laughs> and, uh, and, oh, Alexander the Great can do everything. Ooh, the Gordian knot. No one would believe it if it hadn't actually happened. Yeah, exactly. Or, uh, for that matter, Cortez or Pizarro. Guy yeah. starts out as a swineherd in Spain and goes off and conquers Peru, uh, like with 200 men. Uh, you know, really, just not plausible at all. And, uh, you know, and also alternate history... Well, everyone goes through their life thinking, what if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? What if I'd taken this job or that course or not this one or not that one? What if I'd broken up with X or hadn't broken up with X? You know, so uh, the, the fabric of alternative history is woven into our lives because we all have might-have-beens that we go over obsessively. Is there, is there a, like, a, like a particular linchpin in history that, that fascinates you that you would – that? If you could go and write a story right now, that you would just be drawn to maybe trying something there. Well, the fact of the matter is that the more history you read, the more linchpins you find. Uh, Touche. Uh, history's a, a sort of odd mix of things that were going to happen anyway and things that might not have happened. Um, well, for example, Columbus discovered, um, discovered the Americas. Um, I think I mentioned earlier today, he discovered it because he miscalculated the diameter of the Earth. <laughs> Contrary to popular mythology, everyone, ed every educated person knew the world was round in Columbus's time. They had since Hellen the Hellenistic period. Um, Columbus misinterpreted what someone meant by miles, which was a variable measurement in those days, and thought the Earth was about half the diameter that most people thought it was. His whole expedition to sail west and come to China was based on a misapprehension on the diameter of the Earth. And if he'd been right and there was no American continent in the, in the way, he would have died of thirst somewhere in the, in the Pacific. So he is history's luckiest man, is basically yeah. what we've just determined. But the fact of the matter is that Europeans had discovered how to build ships and the knowledge of the deep ocean currents and wind patterns that made it very likely that someone was going to discover America in those decades. Uh, it's possible that Basque and uh, other fishermen and whalers were on the Grand Banks before Columbus. They just didn't tell anybody. Um, the Vinland episode was known. Uh, the Portuguese blundered into Brazil on their way to India, which makes perfect sense in sailing ship terms, three years after Columbus. And they'd planned that expedition already. So someone was going to discover America about the time that Columbus sailed. On the other hand, some things are, like, highly contingent. I did a story recently in which someone prevents Gabriel Princip from shooting the Archduke Ferdinand in 1914. And World War I doesn't happen uh, on, on schedule. And that really was a comedy of errors. There was this conspiracy to assassinate the Archduke in Sarajevo. Uh, but the, the bomb didn't go off. They shot the wrong guy. Uh, two of the conspirators lost their nerve and just disappeared and went home to their parents. Uh, and Princip was wandering around Sarajevo absolutely devastated because he'd, he'd volunteered to be in the Serb army during their, their war with the Turks. And they turned him down because he was a weedy little guy. <laughs> Uh, dweeb, not su not sufficiently physically robust to fight, so he was desperate to prove his uh, his allegiance to the Serb national cause. The, the whole uh, assassination had, had been a series of blunders. He was sitting there dejectedly on a street corner, and the Archduke's car happened to stall right in front of him. 
on its way to the hospital to visit the guy who'd been shot by mistake by one of the other conspirators. And, you know, Princip gets his moment of glory and, and shoots the Archduke, Archduke and his wife, um, whom no one but his wife would have missed. But, you know, and hence World War I results in, and starts in that year. Um, I saw a button once at a convention, Archduke Ferdinand Alive, World War I a mistake. <laughs> so I, I wrote a story on that one recently. Fair enough. Uh, and, and I think we've also just determined that if Christopher Columbus is the luckiest man in history, that the Archduke Ferdinand really was the unluckiest man mm -hmm. in history, because yep. it could not have worked out worse for him. Now, in a lot of your stories, you uh, go into a lot of detail about the societies and the cultures uh, that kind of develop as a result of uh, whatever happenstance happens. And I get the, the sense that world building is one of your favorite pastimes. Oh, yes. Is that, is that your favorite part of the whole creative process, more than characters or story, but kind of the setting? It came first. Um, I dreamed up worlds to tell, to tell stories in, and often I would, I would spend more time on the world than the story. I have to keep that under control. It's one of the things that I have to restrain myself. And I'm like, no, Steve, you've told them enough about the economic underpinnings. <laughs> when I was doing my first book, I, uh, which I did on a manual typewriter, by the way, that was back when cut and paste meant cut and paste. I, uh, I did a huge map of this post-apocalyptic North America, and it covered the entire floor of the miserable slum apartment I was living in at the time over the transvestite hookers. And really, there was a hole in the kitchen floor. I could hear everything. Oh, dear. Uh, but, you know, I, I had it all taped together, and I was writing on it in excruciating detail on this 15-square-foot map. And finally, I told myself, Steve, they don't need to know about the caravan routes for carrying flax. So just, you know, sit down and write the damn book. So I did. But at, at the very least, the, uh, the world will have a very large amount of internal consistency because you know where the caravan routes are that carry the flax. Yes, exactly. It, it, it's like an iceberg. Only 10% shows, but the rest it lends its solidity. How much research goes into uh, your writing, especially when you're dealing with alternate history? One would presume you have to know a little bit about the history that you're, you're stemming from. So I imagine helps. you do a lot of reading. Oh, yeah. Um, but then, you know, my idea of paradise is a large library with a good restaurant attached. Um, I just read history, anthropology, that sort of thing for fun. And uh, I, so I research incessantly, as it were, but then guided into specific areas um, when I'm doing a book that involves something. The Dies the Fire series involved um, a lot of the characters were Wiccans, for example. So I, I started corresponding with Wiccans as well as reading the books. So, you know. I, I do that often when I'm uh, in an area I'm not familiar with or writing with characters who are like violently unlike me because uh, I, I do it to, so that I'm not tripped up by my own assumptions. One of my favorite sayings is that it's not what you don't know that'll kill you, it's what you think you know that isn't so. So you, you want to get someone closer to it as far as you can to uh, guide you away from that sort of mistake. And then, at the very least, if you make that mistake, you can point at them and go, no, that's their fault. Yeah. Exactly. I was given bad information by that person. Who ought to have known, yes. There you go. So, uh, it's, it's really just writing is about passing the buck. I think that's what we've... Uh, if there's one lesson we can all take away from today, it's that writing is all about making sure someone else takes the blame. You can make friends that way, too. It's amazing how cooperative <laughs> people, uh, people are when you say, I need help with a book. Could you tell me a few things? When I was doing Island in the Sea of Time, which involves sending the island of Nantucket back to the Bronze Age, I walked around the island of Nantucket with a recorder and interviewed people. You know, like, what do you do? What are your hobbies? What are your skills? How did you start this business? That sort of thing. 
So all the people and machines and facilities and skills and that sort of thing in the book are actually present on the island. I conflated them and changed names so they couldn't sue. But <laughs> second lesson to take from today's podcast, don't get sued. Mm -hmm. There you go. Um, now, you've, uh, you've, also, you've written a lot of standalone books. You've written uh, a lot of uh, collaborations or, or pieces of, um, I want to say, collections. Do you prefer to write just by yourself, or do you prefer to collaborate with someone? Both can be fun. On the whole, um, I like doing my own work best, but uh, collaborations can be entertaining. Depends who you're collaborating with. Fair enough. Um, I, I wrote one collaborative book with a couple of people, and we were staying at a cottage in Muskoka, at, near Muskoka, and we... We did get, tend to get on each other's nerves, so we were digging a biffy at the same time. And we'd go out and pound on the granite with a sledgehammer while the other person was writing, handing off the, uh, the uh, keyboard. keyboard. But, you know, it, it depends on the person you're writing with. Um, I did a collaboration with Anne McCaffrey, and she gave me some very general directions and then took a look at what I'd done. I did a collaboration with Dave Drake, and he wrote a 40,000-word outline, which was an experience and taught <laughs> me how to do outlines. So... Depends on the on the authors involved. Fair enough. How many books do you own personally? You mentioned oh. that you do like to do a lot of reading. God. Um, and this is a slightly led question because I was following Twitter earlier and they were tweeting the guest mega panel. Mm -hmm. And I know that you had a good answer and I wanted to get it on the podcast. Well, when I moved down from Toronto to Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1995, they did the usual weight check on the stuff they were shipping, and they did it twice because they didn't believe the first answer. And then they came to me and said, sir, you have three and a half tons of books. <laughs> and that was uh, 15, no, 10, uh, yeah, more than a decade ago, and I've, I've been spending many thousands of dollars on books every year since. So I, I bought my present house because the office had originally been planned to be a two-car garage, but was converted into a den. So I converted it into an office with wall-to-ceiling, with floor-to-ceiling floor floor bookcases. And I thought, boy, I'll never run out of space here. <laughs> and that was a naive ha. belief, I assume. Yes. Uh, I will admit my dream home has a library in it mm -hmm. uh, with floor-to-ceiling bookshelves filled with musty old volumes. Mm -hmm. Do you prefer physical, actual books that you can smell and hold or do you are you getting into the whole ebook thing with with a kindle or an ipad yes um both i prefer physical books all other things being equal but uh, ebooks enable you to carry a lot more of them around that's true you know I, I recently was crushed by the weight of culture i tripped fell and broke my hand because i had a knapsack full of books on my back because i was going over to a coffee shop to do some writing and i had a lot of my research tools with me but for traveling these days i mostly uh, prefer my kindle I've got thousands of books on that, too. And you probably own physical copies of them as well. A lot of them, yeah. I, I find that that's often the case, too. People will not uh, end up uh, getting too much new. Mm -hmm. They want to carry all of the books they have on them, mm -hmm. so they load up their Kindle with what's already in their library. Um, and, and, of course, the, then there's also doing research on the web. I was writing an article, uh, a chapter recently in the book I'm working on, and it involved the Orient Express, and I needed to know the menus in the dining car on the Orient Express, and the uh, local Wi-Fi server went down. And I thought for a moment, oh my god, I'm paralyzed, I can't write. <laughs> and then I realized, you know, there are other ways to access information. And that's when you walk down to your local library. Mm -hmm. It's in a book. Uh, that, <coughs> that actually, that, that's a very 
specific and arcane piece of information to need. What was the menu on the American, uh, I was going to say the American Express, <laughs> on the Oriental Express, although I imagine that the American Express Railway would have been, mm -hmm. it would have gone everywhere. Um, <laughs> what is the, uh, that's off topic, what is the uh, most obscure, bizarre piece of information you've ever needed to dig out from under a rock for a book? Mm, okay. Uh, let's see. Well, some were surprisingly hard to get. I needed to know when you harvested wheat in the Loire Valley in France for a book. And I actually had to call the French embassy, and they didn't know. <laughs> um, let's see. I needed to find out the precise astronomical alignments of Stonehenge. So I read three or four books on that. There's a surprising amount of, uh, of research done on that, on the, you know, where the stones were aligned with the sunrise and sunset of the solstice and the various stars and that sort of thing. Hmm. That was suitably arcane. And then there was a lot of Babylonian stuff for another book I had to research. Fair enough. And uh, I assume that the uh, information on ancient cultures is all very up-to-date and uh, uh, authoritative without any gaping holes or contradictory information whatsoever. Well, no, actually, I, I tend to write about, when I'm using ancient history, I tend to write about periods with not too many written records. That way you can, like, interpret the data <laughs> any way you damn well please. You know, is, is Stonehenge like a burial site? Is it a giant a primitive astronomical computer? Uh, you know, you can fill in your own damned answer. And that's uh, probably the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, lots been written about Napoleon, not as much about his brother Jim. Yeah, Harry Turtle once said to me that as you got closer to, closer to the present, you got buried under data when you were researching. I would imagine that it would be very hard to write a historical, uh, well, an alternate history fiction book set in the 80s, for example. Not because you'd have, you'd have so much information that you'd have to get right because so many of your readers would have lived through the 80s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, they, you can't, can't just make it up in that case. But, you know, you can always just destroy the world. That's an easy way to do it, I suppose. Which is more or less what I, I did with the Dies of the Fire series. There's a change in 1998, and uh, the modern world comes to an abrupt and cr crashing end. And, you know, everything is ruins after that, so... And, and from there, you can just make up whatever you want. Mm -hmm. So it works out very well. Do you have a business plan, but you're not sure where to go from there? Do you want to increase sales? Get noticed? Wow your audience? Make your mom proud? Well, we've got you covered. We're connected, we're creative, and we're innovative. We are strategy first. If you've got a great product or service and you want the whole world to take notice, Call Focus Communications. Let's start a conversation. Go to focuscom.ca. And now, a dramatic reading with Scott C. Bourgeois. Precursors, by the website tvtropes.org. Also known as ancients, they are standard fixtures in much of science fiction and fantasy, an ancient race whose culture and knowledge rose to its pinnacle in ages long past, but which is now extinct, or ascended to a higher plane of existence. In science fiction settings, they are usually considered the first race to have gained sentience in the universe or galaxy, giving them a noticeable leg up on everybody else. In fantasy settings, they will usually be the original pinnacle sentient species created by the god or gods. 
At their height, they are usually rumored to have been capable of doing and have done just about anything, up to and including creating super-intelligent species and reworking entire worlds with a snap of a finger. And almost any strange and persistent mystery in the story's universe is usually laid at their feet. They may have been sufficiently advanced or just much better than everybody else with technology or magic, but either way, they left their mark, a mark that remains to this day. Then, they vanished into myth, leaving behind nothing but tantalizing ruins and rare, sometimes incomprehensible artifacts and dangerous weapons. Just why? No one knows. Perhaps they ascended to a higher plane of existence, or were wiped out in a disaster or war, or maybe they just relocated en masse to somewhere else and have yet to be found. Whatever the reason, they set the stage for the modern world, left behind a few MacGuffins and surprises for the heroes and villains to find, and then got conveniently out of the way. And then there are times when they themselves are the reason everything's gone to hell, and they intend to keep it that way. Sometimes the precursors can be rediscovered. Usually nobody, especially not the precursors themselves, is happy with that. This also applies to the audience. The romance of precursors can be easily shattered by giving too much away. Bonus points if Earth humans are precursors and their incredibly human descendants try to rediscover their heritage, or conversely, if Earth humans are only the descendants. If humans are the precursors, that's advanced alien humans. If everybody's scared of them, that's humans are Cthulhu. If they pick on their descendants, they've become abusive precursors. If they couldn't care less about anyone else, they're neglectful precursors. If they help their descendants, they've become benevolent precursors. If there's one or more race that played precursor to the precursors, they're recursive precursors. Any and all of these are susceptible to awakening the sleeping giant. If they gave their tech or it's being used by another race, it's a low culture high tech. Very often, their most powerful technology will appear deceptively primitive and or ceremonial. Very commonly used to justify rubber forehead aliens, everyone was made from a common template by precursors, and that is why they all look so similar. Not to, of course, be confused with the space flight simulation game, The Precursors. So I didn't do this during uh, the recording with SM Sterling, but I do need to take a moment to thank our sponsors. First off, Focus Communication and, uh, of course, Guru Digital Arts College. Uh, normally, we'd go into a little bit more about them, but seeing as I am largely soloing this episode, I'm uh, not really here with Adam to riff on it. So uh, suffice to say, Focus Communications, Guru Digital Arts College, thank you very much for your continued support. And now, back to the show. So you mentioned that you're working on something right now. And uh, that was that actually segues into my next question. What are you working on right now? Well, uh, and I'm going to uh, ask specifically, can you tell us anything about what you're currently working on? Yes. Uh, I'm working on the third book in my uh, urban fantasy series that started with uh, A Taint in the Blood, which is sort of my homage to the uh, great science fantasy of the 1930s and 40s, Jack Williamson and the Unknown Writers. Uh, it's about the, uh, the secret... Uh, species that's behind all our myths of vampires and werewolves and that sort of thing. Uh, they don't sparkle. Uh, they're actually quite unpleasant. Uh, and uh, that 
that was what I needed the menu in the Orient Express for. Okay. Because I thought, you know, if they have all these powers, they're going to be filthy rich. Well, that just makes sense. Yeah. If I had superpowers, I would use it for personal gain. Yeah, exactly. And gratification. Uh, well, that so, goes without saying. Yes. Uh, I'm also working on my next book in the Change series. I deliberately set that series up to have amplitude to continue if people liked it and they turned out to like it. So I've got plenty of stuff to write about there. Uh, the next one's going to be called The Given Sacrifice, and it ends the arc of one character. But I gave him kids, so... <clears throat> so the lineage goes on. Yes. And I'm working on a number of other things. I've just done some uh, stories for uh, tribute anthologies, one for the Poole Anderson antholo uh, anthology that's coming out soon. And I'm sort of working up some vague ideas for uh, an alternate history set in the 1920s involving Gabriella Prinzip. Oh. I believe you mentioned that uh, off the top, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it, can we assume that uh, that you draw a lot of inspiration from everyday stuff that happens from you? Yeah. I got the idea for the Island in the Sea of Time series when Jan and I were back on Nantucket where we honeymooned. And uh, we go back there most springs. And we were walking on the beach, and I saw a ship going by in the dark. I saw the, the lights go by. And I thought, this island feels isolated, but it isn't really. I wonder what it would take to really isolate this island. And the romantic walk on the beach turned into a brisk walk back to the hotel where I started taking notes. <coughs> That's the most romantic honeymoon story I've ever heard. <laughs> yes, the, the people on the island during our honeymoon said that we're the only couple they'd ever known who could read, eat, and hold hands at the same time. That is an impressive skill. <laughs> I'm astonished. Y he's doing it right now. You can't see. And there's nothing that you can say that would prove that that is not the case right now. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> I just derailed my train of thought, and now I don't remember what my follow-up question to that was going to be. Um, nope, it's gone. It's gone. We'll never, now, now you will never know what it was. So I'll just go on to the next written question. And there's a piece of alternate history right there. If yes. I hadn't smacked my lips, would he be able to, have been able to ask that question? There you go. There you go. Um, so, obviously you started out as a writer, being, having been a lawyer, decided mm -hmm. to become a writer. Um, likely had some trials and tribulations along the way as you kind of got into the into the business and into the industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm wondering, seeing as it's National Novel Writing Month right now, and there are a mm -hmm. lot of aspiring writers, possibly here in my semi-live audience, and certainly outside not paying attention to me at all, um, do you have any tips that, and you probably get asked this question all the time, that uh, you wish you had been given when you started out, that you'd like to pass along to the next generation of writers? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I got a lot of advice from people who were in the field before I, before I was published. Um, I met a fair number of conventions and so forth, and it was usually good advice like finish and submit. <coughs> uh, although it's, it's rather odd that we call the process of getting a book published submission. <laughs> uh, <coughs> but uh, there's a... I have to say, frankly, there's a substantial element of sheer luck involved, hitting the right editor at the right time, or your book just happens to hit the zeitgeist. You can't write to market, uh, unless you're like writing uh, for pay for someone's hiring you to do it. Um, you have just have to write the book you want to, want to write or want to read, and hope that, it, hope that it succeeds. Fair enough. So try, try again, yeah. I guess would be the good advice. You know, there, there are certain things you can say, you know, like um, finish the book, uh, don't rewrite more than once or twice except to editorial direction. Submit as often as you can, that sort of thing. But beyond that, it's to a certain extent just luck. Fair enough. Now, there's, um, there's a kind of a new 
uh, I want to say thing. It's not, I suppose, super new. Because um, people have been self-publishing for a long time, mm-hmm. but it's but it's gotten a lot easier now with the advent of the internet, and uh, there are tools now that allow people to write their own book and and put it out themselves. In the last um, two seasons, I'll say, because actually the first person we spoke to about it was last Halloween, we had an author on the show who had self-published a vampire novel. Mm-hmm. And then just uh, a few episodes ago, we spoke with uh, local author Minister Faust, who has a foot in both worlds because he has gone through a publishing house and actually published stuff. But he's also self-published some stuff because he had some stories he wanted to write that he figured no one would want to publish. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on self-publishing? Well, it used to be the kiss of death. Um, There have always been an occasional self-published book that just takes off like Aragorn. Um, But usually it was a sign that you were just like not serious. There's, There's a saying in the business, the money must always flow to the author. And if you paid to have something published, you know, it was a sign that you, you couldn't actually write publishable stuff. These days, uh, electronic publishing has changed the parameters a little. There are some people who just go ru- in cold and lots of people want to read their work. That's not going to happen very often. Um, the function that a publishing house fulfills is not actually shipping dead tree product around. That's only about 15% of the total costs of publishing a book goes into physical distribution and and printing and paper and all that stuff. The rest goes into the editorial function, which is straining the the occasional pearl from the the avalanche of sewage. Um, If you think a lot of the stuff that's published is bad, you should read most of the stuff that gets turned down. I've seen samples of it. There's an enormous volume of it. One of the publishers I work with publishes maybe 10 to 20 new titles a month, and they get 60,000 submissions a month. Um, that's why a lot of publishers won't take un- unagented submissions anymore. So if the reader had to do that, the reader would have no time to actually read because they'd have to be like sifting through the enormous pile of detrius that would end up uh, in front of them. Um, and the, the other thing, of course, that uh, publishing houses do is marketing, and that means getting your name out. It's notable that electronic publishing does more for people who have already got an audience. It helps build audience, but it's very hard to actually start an audience with, uh, sh- with pure e-publishing. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. Well, actually, virtually everything about being a new author is very difficult, I'm afraid. And e- e-publishing isn't going to change that. It, it alters the parameters a bit, but doesn't change the basic fact that it's very hard to get an audience one way or another. And, and especially considering, you, as you said, you kind of need to get your name out there. Yeah, you have to like get out of the ruck. Indeed. So. You need to stand out. Make yourself heard so that mm. people go, I want to read what you're writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully it's then also good. Because if you've self-published, um, probably you did not have an editor. I'm just going to put that out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also serve an important job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, I've gotten a lot of good advice from editors. Would you care to share? Well, the first story I ever sold, the editor called me up and, and told me that the ending was ambiguous. And it turned out that I hadn't thought so, but I was, I was willing to, you know, make modifications. And it turned out that I hadn't sent the last page. <laughs> and without that, the ending, by, by God, was ambiguous. <laughs> um, more generally, editors have told me, you know, this book is too long. It needs to be split. You're not covering the, the, pl- the plot arc uh, in sufficient detail. And uh, uh, this character is not sympathetic for some reason. My first novel, the editor told me, this is a fantasy, although you've written it as post-apocalyptic science fiction. It has more of a fantasy atmosphere, so you need to emphasize that, and I did. 
and uh, that helped. So, yes, good editor can really help you. A bad editor can screw you to the wall. But then, you know, that's life. Fair enough. I remembered what the question I was going to ask was, by the way. So I'm going to go all the way back in the conversation to it, because I was actually uh, leading you into, have you found any fodder for a book here in Edmonton? Um, well, I've, I've had several um, chapters in the, the one I'm working on now, in the Change series, that actually involve Alberta. So it was nice to get here and get some like personal exposure to the landscape. I haven't been in Alberta for quite some time. Saskatchewan, yes. Alberta, no. We're less flat than Saskatchewan. Yes. In Saskatchewan, if your dog runs away, you can see it going for three days. Yes. That um, is the saying. Yeah. But uh, the, uh, this isn't uh, Alberta anymore in the post-apocalyptic future. It's the dominion of Drumheller. Oh, Drumheller is very important in the future. Yes. It's because of the dinosaur bones, I presume. Yes. Edmonton, I'm afraid, is a death zone. Oh. Full of cannibals. Oh, well, I, I, I won't lie. If technology stopped working tomorrow, my instinct would be to immediately start eating my neighbors. Mm -hmm. So, because there's just, what else is there to do? Mm -hmm. Except be cold. That's basically it. Mm -hmm. So, there you go. Uh, Edmonton of the future is uh, just filled with cannibal zombies. Mm -hmm. that, is, uh, that is the way to go. Um, Temporarily. It's sort of like the Kilkenny cats. They get down to one eventually. Oh, well, I suppose eventually if everyone's eating everyone... Mm -hmm. Someone's going to be very fat and alone by the end. It's not sustainable. <laughs> no rules. No censors. It's Adam Rosenhart, Unleashed. If any of you are regular followers of my Edmonton blog watch, which I publish every week, Mondays on the unknownstudio.ca, you'll know that there's a guy in town by the name of Todd Babiak who has recently started his own blog called Magpie Town. Now, Todd used to be a columnist and a writer over at the Edmonton Journal. Uh, since he left the journal, though, he started his own company, a marketing company called Story Engine, and their focus is on helping corporations to tell stories, which is really what marketing is all about. Now, on Todd's blog, he's been trying to sort out exactly what Edmonton's story is, what it is about this place that makes it the city that it is. And the general thesis that Todd appears to have settled on, and, and it's one that I agree with him on, is that Edmonton is a place where people can come together to make things. And it is in the spirit of making things that I wanted to share a little piece of news with you today. About a year ago, it started occurring to me that Edmonton, we all know that Edmonton has a really powerful, a really excellent social media community. We've got active Twitter communities. We have blogs and podcasts and, and video blogs of all stripes and tons of interesting content is out there. And so we know this and we celebrate it occasionally on the Unknown Studio and in other blogs celebrate it as well. But we're not doing a great job of truly recognizing the best of the best. Now, View Weekly every year publishes their Best of Edmonton issue, and lately they've been including things like Best Website, or sorry, Best Blog, Best Podcast, that sort of thing. And I think the winners and the, the selections of winners have been outstanding over the last few years, and we were happy to be counted as one of the runners-up in the podcast category this year, second only to Movie Jerks and sharing the spotlight with them, as well as J&J, &J, our friends over at the Movie Podcast. But I don't think it's enough. 
You know, I work in the advertising business, and every year we get together to celebrate the best of the best in our industry. They're called the Ace Awards. And at the Ace Awards, we award... Uh, we recognize different companies for the work they've done in categories like best radio ad, best website, best social media campaign, best integrated campaign, and of course, best in show. Now, there's no equivalent for bloggers and podcasters and video bloggers and people who do online cartoons and that sort of thing until now. Next week on Wednesday, November 28th, We'll be putting an announcement out on the Unknown Studio and through a variety of other blogs on the web that the Yeggies are coming to Edmonton. So I want you to imagine what we're actually calling the Edmonton New Media Awards, like the Academy Awards would be the analog, and the, which is also called the Oscars, and we're calling ours the Yeggies. And the Edmonton New Media Awards will be an annual award show created to recognize and celebrate outstanding social media content creators. It's a show to highlight the amazing talent that we have here in Edmonton, from people who code websites themselves to those who write or speak or draw all on their own time. Yegi's recipients will inspire, evoke, inform, educate, and entertain us, and they do it because they have a passion for it. So we're opening this up to a bunch of people, the entire city. You can submit your own blog for a nomination, or you can nominate the blogs or podcasts or whatever of the people that you love to read, view, and listen to week after week here in Champion City. I hope that you guys will participate in what we're trying to do with the Yeggies. You can find out more at yeggies, Y-E-G-G-I-E-S dot com. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get a ton of you guys nominating podcasts, blogs, video blogs, cartoonists, whoever is doing something interesting on the web. And the categories run the gamut. They're not ca specific categories for medium, so it's not like best blog or best podcast, but we go and we look at things like best in arts and culture or best in current affairs and politics or best in fashion and lifestyle. And we've, we limited it to about seven categories this year, but we'll see how it goes and maybe we'll have a reason to expand the number of categories. And my hope is that uh, by creating the Yeggies, we're giving people an incentive to create their own blog or podcast or whatever, to just to do something online that's interesting to them and maybe to the community, and that helps to elevate the outstanding online content that gets produced by people from this city and by people about this city week after week. I hope you'll participate. Remember, check out yeggies.com. We'll have more information up there next week, and as the weeks go on, we're hoping to do a big event in 2013 in the spring. Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out The Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at guru digitalarts.com or call 
Um, so I'm going to... Because I have an audience, I feel that it would be uh, it would be a waste not to let you guys uh, pipe in a little bit. So I'm going to open the floor to some some questions from the peanut gallery. Does anybody have some questions for uh, S. M. Sterling, published author and noted history buff, uh, or his lovely wife, who's been sitting here quietly uh, minding her own business this whole time, but is more than welcome to say anything if if someone has a question for her. Yes. And before you answer, I'm going to repeat it for our home audience. Uh, the question was, are you going to do a sequel to the novel The Peshawar Lancers, the very novel I have next to me at the table? Uh, it's a distinct possibility. I've been talking it over with my editor. The Peshawar Lancers is an alternate history steampunk uh, novel, for those who, who don't know it, which they can remedy by buying it on Amazon. Um, <laughs> and it it's posits that the world is struck by a spray of comets in the year 1878 and the British relocate the, the headquarters of their empire to India. So 125 years later, they're all wearing turbans and eating a lot of uh, chicken tikka masala, <laughs> which, you know, that could never happen in real history. <laughs> and, uh, and, and running the, the Angrezi Raj, as they call it, from Delhi. Uh, and that was steampunk before I knew there was such a thing as steampunk. It has uh, dirigibles and steam trains and horses. And there ends up with a climactic duel between the hero and the villain with sabers on the outer envelope of a burning dirigible. Uh, and it has a Babbage engine. So, you know, it, it's, it's got all the classic tropes. I thought it was a pretty good piece of work. And uh, my editor is interested in possibly repackaging it as actual steampunk, uh, you know, saying this is steampunk. Now and that steampunk is a thing. Now that steampunk is the thing and possibly doing some more. I left uh, a deliberate hook at the end for a possible sequel. So... I wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be unwilling to do that at all. There you go. There's hope for a sequel to the Peshawar Lancers for our tens of listeners, all of whom, I presume, have all read the novel. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why are you listening to the show, really? Uh, any other questions? Yes? On the same note, um, are there any plans for a continuation of the Nantucket series? Yeah. Um, uh, so, once again, just before you answer so that our home audience isn't wondering what weird, nebulous questions are being asked you from the void... Uh, will there be sequels to the Nantucket series? That's a possibility, but a less immediate one. Um, I have all the contracts I can handle with the follow-on series that was that began with Dies the Fire. And uh, it's a matter of so many books, so little time. Ideas are easy. Uh, execution is hard. It takes time. I've got hundreds of ideas for books in my head, and I can only write one or two a year. So. Yes? So was Revolution eerily similar to your book or blatantly ripped off? Um, I could answer that with a series of inarticulate snarls and grunts of rage. <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, actually, uh, it's not legally actionable, let's put it that way. I don't think it's legally actionable. My agent is watching carefully. <laughs> but uh, I don't think they've done a very good job with the premise. And I don't think after the apocalypse, everyone will have clothes from the gap and perfect perfect hair either. People have their priorities straight, though, if they're, if they're worrying about fashion in the post-apocalypse. I think that that is the first thing everybody needs to raid a Gap store, mm -hmm. make sure that their stylist is still alive, and then worry about food and shelter. Mm -hmm. That's just it's symptomatic, really, of our modern culture, I would say. Uh, any other questions? Does anybody want to make up a question? 
We've still got plenty of time. Yes, made up question number one. She, I, th I think you meant um, something along the lines of, does reader pressure affect what I do? Well, does, does reader pressure get in the way of things that might go in a new direction? You know, when, when, some, when a rock star plays a concert, they always want to hear, kind of get more satisfaction, not the song that they composed last night. Ah, yes, I see. I see. Your question is that then essentially, does it prevent me from going in new directions? No. Um, it works a little differently with writing. Um, basically, uh, pressure on authors comes from publishers and the publisher's ideas of what the readers will want, which is not necessarily anything to do with what the readers actually want. And it comes at different levels. Editors are usually pretty good about letting you do stuff that you want to. The suits a little higher up in the, in the uh, corporate hierarchy, they can be difficult because often they want a book that's different from the one that's just like the last successful book, but different. Um, yeah, I've been encouraged. I've been encouraged to write more in, in in successful series. I always insist on having something new that isn't in one of the series going as well. However, I design my worlds, the ones that I write in, so that they'll have plenty of amplitude for writing stuff that doesn't bore me. Um, I've, as I said, I've got far more ideas for books that I would enjoy writing than I can possibly ever write, even if I live to be 95. And my father lived to be 92, so I've got some prospect of it. <laughs> so uh, I would say that it's a potential problem, but not an actual one for me so far. Now, kind of a follow-up to that. Um, with the internet and with social media becoming such a, a big thing, and uh, one would one would presume that makes it so that uh, you are a little <laughs> more connected directly with your fans because they have a, a way to reach out to you kind of uh, directly as opposed through through mail or through your publisher or whatnot. Do you do you get more um, direct feedback from your fans now than you used to? Yes, considerably. I used to get uh, like a, a couple of uh, fan letters a month, and now, of course, I have you know I have a list serve, and I'm on Facebook, and uh, potentially I could be reading hundreds of messages a day, but I don't, because <laughs> I don't have the time. I skim and uh, delete a lot. Um, actually, a lot of the time it's useful. People will catch things for you, or you can get. Uh, I've got fans in in various places, so if I need to know what the uh, usual casual greeting is in a village in southern Germany, which I did recently. Uh, I can just ask one of them, and he'll he'll do that. Or someone will go out and take photographs for me of an area that I'm writing about. That's happened a fair bit. So uh, or translate stuff for me. So that's actually quite useful. Um, I haven't found any any real downside to it occasionally. Fair enough. So uh, no no rabid fans angry at you for killing character X or. Not or yet. going in a direction that they didn't like, and how dare you? No one's kidnapped me and cut oh, off. We haven't moved enough, and now the lights are turning off in the room. There we go. <laughs> we are now in utter darkness. Hey, they're back on. Oh, yes, but the fans are waving and uh, standing up and so, performing uh, antic gestures. For those of you at home, uh, Grant McEwen's new annex uh, is state-of-the-art, and part of this state-of-the-art is 
ridiculously stupid in that if people aren't moving around in the rooms enough, the, the lights, lights automatically turn off on a timer. And because we've all been sitting here patiently listening to, uh, uh, yeah, yes. well, yeah, uh, yes, we had a, we had a, a, a uh, Raven, uh, what's your house? Slytherin. Ravenclaw. Ravenclaw. We had a Ravenclaw skipping up and down to turn the lights back on. There you go. They're useful for something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's actually, uh, you know, a lot of technology is supposed to give you more choices, but it actually ends up the machine bullying you. Yeah. And, and in our case, probably for the best. I'm certainly out of shape, so. But at least the technology did not stop voices just now. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That would have, uh, th and that would have been my second, I would have started eating people. I think we've already es <laughs> established that that would have been what would have happened next. So uh, any other questions from the audience? You looked like you had one, and then you put down your hand, and now you're kind of raising it again. Is there a place you would never write about? Law school. Or time. Sorry? <laughs> Law school. There you go. Uh, which was not the, the, the most pleasant experience of my life. Uh, realizing more and more as time went on that I was deeply disinterested in the whole process. Um, offhand, I can't think of anything apart from a, a few personally disagreeable things like that. I don't see myself ever writing a, uh, a long novel about the midlife crisis of a uh, of a science fiction author, <laughs> you know, um, if I if I want to gaze at myself that intensely, I can just look in a mirror. Um, I, I like to write about things that are a bit different from me. But uh, apart from that, no. Uh, kind of a follow up to that. Uh, do you find that there are any it, sticking with kind of alternate history? Do you find that there are any particular points in history that are kind of overdone? That maybe if somebody wants to write about an alternate history, find something different. Yeah, Civil War, the American Civil War, and World War II. Everybody knows Confederates and everybody knows Nazis, and you know it's 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 a it gets harder and harder to do anything that isn't like a totally derivative in those periods. If you're a real uh, Rivera type, you can, you can pull it off, but it as I said, it's harder and harder. The downside is that uh, if you're going to write alternate history, you have to have the audience be at least mildly familiar with the uh, the actual history or it just doesn't make any sense to them. Um, I have a, um, well, I did a book called Conquistador and in the background of Conquistador, there's an alternate world in which Alexander the Great did not die young but lived uh, to be into his 70s. There's no reason why he couldn't. He was uh, healthy otherwise. His dad lived into his 50s and then was assassinated, so could have happened. Uh, and that would have had a massive impact on, on subsequent world history. But people just aren't as familiar with the Hellenistic period as they are with World War II. So, you know, there are endless ringing of changes on Hitler. Well, and I would uh, also assume that uh, with an, an English-speaking market, uh, your main uh, customers are going to be Americans. Mm -hmm. And Americans would be familiar with the Civil War and with World War II more so than perhaps more world events. And that's yeah. not a dig at the American education system, just that those are two kind of important, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm going to use the word linchpins again, in American history, World War II and the Civil War, and so people would be intimately familiar with them. Yeah, I've, I've kicked around an idea occasionally for a, uh, an alternate history based on the, the life of uh, Timur-i Ling, the uh, Timur Tamer Ling, the great uh, Central Asian conqueror, but that would be like totally obscure. <laughs> um, Actually, writing for the English-speaking market is better than writing for almost any other market just because it's bigger. You know, I hate to think of what it would be like writing Danish fiction for a living. You know, it's it five million people. 
that's a uh, pretty pretty limited market. Yeah. Uh, so you would I would assume hope that your work gets translated Translate. into English. Yes, girl with a dragon tattoo. That's well, I was Swedish actually, but uh, true enough. Yeah. Uh, any other questions from the the peanut gallery? I saw a hand move, but he was just scratching his nose. Yes. I had two choices. I, I needed a long, relatively narrow valley, and it was either the Willamette Valley or the Shenandoah. And looking into it, the Willamette Valley seemed uh, more suitable because of the distribution of population and that sort of thing. And uh, so I picked, uh, picked the Willamette, which enabled me to have a, a medieval dictatorship centered on Portland, Oregon, which was sort of like ironically pleasing. <laughs> Right on. I have a question for uh, for Jan, entirely because she's been sitting quietly in the corner. Minding my own business. Indeed, and mostly because I just want to get her voice on the podcast at this point. Um, is it difficult being married to a professional author? Not at all. It's very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is the most correct answer I've ever heard. Uh, is, it, is it easy because he works from home or just because... Uh, it's wonderful that he works from home. I see him a lot. And uh, he doesn't just work from home. He works from Joe's Diner. <laughs> oh, where he broke his hand on the way exactly, to, I presume. Exactly, on his way to. Uh, what do you do for a living? I'm a wife. Okay. That is the <laughs> second most correct answer I've ever heard. And Jan, Jan has also written uh, quite a bit herself. She's had a number of stories published. There you go. Been a while. But it has been a while. You need to get back on the writer train. Then. I do. I do. Okay. Does anybody have any questions for Jan? Well, I've got her on the mic. Yes. When are you going to write another Where Witch story? What about it? She wants to know when you're going to write another one. Oh. <laughs> she wants to know when I'm going to write another Weirwinch story. Uh, there hasn't been a, a Chicks in Chainmail anthology in a long time, and I wrote those stories for the Chicks in Chainmail anthology. So if Esther Friesner ever decides to do another anthology, I'll definitely write one. Um, but right now, there's none in the, in the hopper. I'm sorry. I think you need to go and kick some ass that's, that's, <laughs> and get that done. That's what it sounds like to me. I'm just checking the time surreptitiously here. We're, we're running a little over on the panel because the panel before us ran a little over. But uh, we're coming up toward the end. So we're going to segue into what would be Adam's favorite part of the show. But Adam's not here. And that would be the Fast 15. Now, for uh, specifically for you, because I presume you've never heard the show before, but I, I assume that all of you have in the audience. The Fast 15 is a series of questions we ask to all of our guests so that our listening audience can get to know you a little better. Mm -hmm. The first 13 are questions we ask of everyone, and the last two are specifically tailored to you. There are wild card questions. Now, Adam's not here to rattle them off, so you get to hear my dulcet tones actually deliver the Fast 15, a rare opportunity for our tens of listeners. Uh, so I'm just going to go and take as long as you need to answer them. It's the fast, quote-unquote, 15. So uh, here we go. Number one, your favorite food? Uh, blueberries. Your favorite color? Uh, black. Mac, PC, or Linux? Mac and PC. I have a, Mac, a PC desktop and a uh, MacBook Pro for portable. Fair enough. A foot in both worlds. Mm -hmm. Some would call you trainer. Others would call you friend. Mm -hmm. uh, dogs or cats? Cats. I have two compulsory authorial cats. There you go. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Favorite holiday? 
Oh. Thanksgiving, that, I think. That's and that's just coming up for you right away. Mm-hmm. So uh, you must be looking forward to it. Yes, we're going to have a quiet Thanksgiving to get dinner get together. That sounds wonderful. Oh, and they're being adorable up on the front. There you go. <laughs> Your favorite sport? Karate. I did karate for 20 years. I had to quit because of hyperextension extension injuries in my knees. Wow. That is the first time anyone has said karate, and that is impressive. Uh, your favorite pastime? Uh, well, I mean, you, apart from writing and reading, um, cooking. I like to cook. I like to make bread. It's soothing to pummel and beat the dough. The, the obvious answer would have been reading is the interesting thing, but I guess you kind of do that professionally. Yeah. So it's, it's difficult to say it's your pastime. Mm-hmm. There, there you go. Uh, your favorite music right now? Oh, um, I've been listen- listening to uh, Carrie Newcomer and uh, Heather Dale and uh, a lot of other vocalists like that. Does, do you find that music helps you write? Yeah, I play, incessant, I play music incessantly when I write. I also put the lyrics in sometimes, although you've got to clear that with the... Uh, Singer, of course. Fair enough. Get copyright. That wasn't one of the Fast 15 questions. I was just curious. Uh, your favorite movie right now? Favorite movie? Uh, well, you mean of all time or the one that I've seen recently? Either is good. How about both? Okay, that I've seen recently. Um, I liked Cloud Atlas a lot. Uh, there's a great scene in which a writer deals with an uh, importunate and idiotic critic in the way that I've always wanted to. <laughs> so you'll know what I won't spoil the movie for you, but you'll know what I mean if, uh, if you see it. Of all time, that would be, I think, the first of Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies. Fair enough. And there's some more of those coming out right away, yes, too. Yes, I'm looking so forward to that. There you go. Uh, you're, and you might not have an answer for this one. A surprising amount of people don't. Your favorite video game? Oh, favorite video game. Uh, that would have to be... Well, mm, I have to delete all games from every, any computer I own. Uh, you know, the displacement activity swallows your day. I used to play hack for a while when we were newly married, and Jan said, I don't want to turn into a hack widow. <laughs> so uh, I deleted that. So I just tend to avoid them as much as I can. Fair enough. Uh, if you had one superpower, what would it be? Oh, well, does immortality count? Sure. Yeah, immortality. I want to see how things turn out. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I'm, I'm also on board for the immortality thing, simply because I keep my stuff here, and I don't want to go anywhere. Uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? Um, I'd have to say both. I, I loathe both Diana Troy and Jar Jar Binks, but at their best, both with, were great. With equal passion? Nearly equal passion. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, so moving on to the wild card questions. Um, who is your favorite author, not including yourself, right now? Ah, my favorite science fiction author would be Paul Anderson. I was uh, a fan of his from a very early age. Um, got a lot of favorite authors in other fields. Uh, you know... Uh, Patrick Leigh Fermor. Patrick Leigh Fermor in travel writing. Uh, Kipling is a poet. Um, hmm. I think that's that's good enough for that one. Kind of the top three right there. Yeah. All right. And uh, if you could personally go back in time to change one event, what would you change? Uh, do you mean in my li- own personal life or in uh, like world history? Sort of I thing? was kind of aiming for world history, but I'm okay with either answer. Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, there's always the classic assassinating Hitler. Uh, but that would lead to another boring World War II novel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, preventing World War I, maybe. Ah. My grandfather was uh, gassed at, at Passchendaele. So I've got a 
personal interest. Of course, he would never have met my grandmother without that because she was a nurse in the You'd hospital. Be preventing your own birth. I'd be preventing my own birth. Grandfather paradox. Dun, yes. dun, dun. <laughs> so there you go. So that is The Fast 15 with author S.M. Sterling and his lovely wife, Jan. Thank you very much for being on the show uh, and uh, for letting me host this panel. I guess I should thank Diane for that. She's sitting quietly in the corner because she's the one who set that up. Thank you all for coming out and, uh, and watching today and asking a few questions here and there as well to the live component of the audience and uh, to our tens of listeners for listening. And for turning the lights on. Yes, and for running around and turning the lights back on. And thank you to Adam Rosenhart, my co-host, for not being here but presumably listening to me sarcastically thank him sometime in the future. Thank you, Adam. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, Episode 76, our guest, S.M. Sterling, pre-production by Adam Rosenhart, post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. Normally, I don't do this in front of an audience. Uh, we usually are holed up in a tiny little cave somewhere, podcasting with the echoey walls and a terrified guest who thinks that we might murder them later on. So this is quite a treat to have a live audience. You guys can feel free to applaud or make noise, and then people in the future will hear you, because this is not live. This is almost live. There you go.